Hey listeners, it's Vry from the editing chair. These episodes were mostly recorded before the protests started, so I wanted to make a little note ahead of time to say that we stand with the protesters in solidarity against the cops and against the murder of black people across the U.S. We encourage you to do whatever you can, whether that's going out and protesting or donating to local bail bonds or other organizations or spreading the news on social media. We have linked some possible organizations on the Twitter, the LGBTQ Freedom Fund and the Okra Project, which has set up remembrances named after Tony McDade and Nina Pop, two of our black trans siblings that were murdered. We tend not to do commentary on black queer cinema for these Pride Month episodes because we feel as a an extremely white podcast, it isn't our place to offer commentary on those films, but we nonetheless would recommend seeking it out. Some films you can stream right now are Moonlight, Just Another Girl on the IRT, Daughters of the Dust, Rafiki, and the works of Cheryl Dunier particularly The Watermelon Woman. These are all great films. We cannot afford to look away. I hope that our podcast can be a moment for you all to recharge because the fight is not over. Happy Pride, y'all. Stay safe. Hi there, listeners. Welcome back to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. I'm Rai, and with me is Dorothy. Hello. And it is Pride 2020 Indoor Edition. Quarantine Edition. Exactly. Oh, we hope you're doing okay out there. We are theming this year around your suggestions. We posted a poll on Twitter. And the overwhelming response that came back was an interest in talking about queer genre film. So that's what we're doing. Yeah, we're going to be looking at works from four different genres. Because obviously, if left to our own devices, it would be entirely too easy to just pick four different horror movies and run with it. <laughs> uh-huh. There was a version of this list that looked like that. I begged you not to. <laughs> it's true. Smarter heads prevailed. <laughs> Uh, That does make this year's Pride a little bit unlike others, uh, in that all of our movies are from the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Not to say that genre films didn't exist in the past, but it was just much easier to get a hold of these. And Mm -hmm. that's saying something, considering. Right? There were some loops. We also kind of wanted to focus on movies that were, if not entirely positive, uh, at least were complicated. So originally the movie, our first movie was Rope, which is f- fully in the scary queer horror movie genre. And we swapped it out for today's pick, which is 1999's The Talented Mr. Ripley. It's still not positive representation, but it's more interesting than just a reskinning of Leopold and Lowe. Got, yeah, I said it. I... <laughs> Yes, that's the other reason we didn't do rope. I didn't want to spend an hour yelling about why. Why are there Leopold and Loeb stands? I swear to God, there are. I've seen them on Tumblr. There are people who are fully Leopold and Loeb did nothing wrong because gay. 
So the reason we went with Talented Mr. Ripley, aside of the fact that I've been wanting to see it for years and just haven't gotten around to it, is it is a very interesting novel in sort of the evolution of the villainous queer narrative. Yeah, and and we figured that it would let us sort of get a window into queer representation in the past, even though it was a more modern work, because it's by... Uh, Patricia Highsmith. Yeah, uh, who some of y'all may know as the author of The Price of Salt, which was made into Carol. Carol, as we've said before on this podcast, is a good movie. There's a very interesting art um, interview that I'm sure will come up a couple of times throughout this episode, that, and I will link it in the show notes. That is an interview with the screenplay adapter of the price of salt who knew highsmith personally and she had some very interesting comments about the ripley novels and sort of highsmith and her life and relation to queerness in her works in general because in fact uh, patricia highsmith was herself a lesbian who came out later in life apparently she would have been just completely jazzed at kate blanchett being cast in both adaptations of her films because that was completely her type <laughs> So you're saying the casting of Carol was exactly like the woman she wrote Carol about. Uh-huh. That's excellent. Right? So good. Just reading that interview and sort of the little bit of Googling I've done, it seems like Ripley is this character who, as written by Highsmith, is fully in that mode of he's never explicitly named as gay because he's that type of deeply repressed character who, if he came out, he'd die. Basically, he would cease to function, very Herbert Westy, in that same kind of mode. Uh, but th the coding is so strongly there, and he seems to almost be like this, this fantasy figure for Highsmith, as she wrote him. You know, because he's He's not really suave, but he is this character who gets away with things and moves through life. And the drawing focus to the novel is will not will he get caught, but will at some point he feel the guilt of his actions. Which I don't know if I want to read five novels about, but it's a very interesting portrait of the author. Yeah, so the Ripley cycle is five novels. Mm-hmm. I have not read them. I'd like to, I just haven't had time. I'm trying to figure out a way to cram them into to my exam reading. <laughs> I figure I can probably justify putting them into my exam reading list if I work at it a little bit. You know, 20th century. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, sorry. My reading has to be extensively planned out time-wise these days. But these do have an interesting adaptational history. Is it five novels? I thought it was four. It must be my brain just categorizing it into the first one and then the other four. Basically. Yeah, it's one of those series. Yeah, there's Talented Mr. Ripley, Ripley Underground, Ripley's Game, The Boy Who Followed Ripley, and Ripley Underwater, published from 1955 to 1991. So the Talented Mr. Ripley was first adapted... Um, In 1960. Yeah, as uh, Plein Soleil, or Purple Noon, and... The actor they cast as Ripley was Alan Delon, who was like France's biggest sex symbol at the time. So it was, he was made into a really, really sexy, suave character. But it also had a very Hollywood code ending, despite not being a Hollywood film, where they changed the ending so that evil inevitably contains the seeds of its own destruction. 
which is really not in keeping from what I understand with the vibe of the Ripley novels and certainly with this because Ripley gets away with things Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason why the question of guilt is so important, because no one is going to hold him to account. Except himself, maybe. Maybe. And maybe. That's, as adapted in this film, that's a very iffy maybe. Well, kind of. Maybe. Yeah, and I, I think that that's why the changed ending to this, which this also has a different ending, mm-hmm. is interesting. And that's what's Because so- they injected the Kate Blanchett character, because they just knew, they just knew Highsmith would want her there. <laughs> That is the other most interesting thing I found about reading. Um, Highsmith passed away in 1995, so we can't speak with her directly on what she would think of this, ad- um, you know, of any of the latter day adaptations of her work. So, but, you know, spe- this person who knew her claimed that that was also quite different from the spirit of the books in some way, that this film is very overtly homoerotic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and didn't they say something like, I I was only able to skim this text because I was in exam hell. <laughs> didn't they say that it's essentially excessively uncomplicated, his character? Uh, yeah, to an, ex- like, to an extent, her reading of it was that if he is actually being queer and not just in the hell of strangulating oppres- of, uh, repression, then that kind of undoes this drive he has to emulate others so that was her take on it which i guess is interesting but to me kind of does a disservice to what's interesting about this film yeah well and i also think that there's a limit to what can be expressed visually we saw a lecture recently where somebody was talking about adaptations of uh a different series of works and kept coming back to how this is too embodied this is too overt but the language of film is different from the language of writing mm-hmm. and in, and so in some ways a lot of the times with films the way we can telegraph things are through performance because we can't step into characters heads in the same way we can in a book so i think there's re- adaptational reason for doing that which yeah and because if he's so locked down and such a flawless performer how would we understand his motivation at all yeah i don't think I feel like the changes for the film that we got are very necessary and very interesting. I liked this movie an awful lot. It's too fucking long. I I knew you would. And the best part is that you were just humming along perfectly chill until the end. Yeah. um, (laughs) And you were like, how dare they? Spoiler alert, this movie gave me an emotion and I did not request that. That doesn't happen when we watch old movies. (laughs) Old. We intellectually compartmentalize and contextualize old movies and don't have feelings about them. This fucking thing's from 1999. Yes, I know. I'm calling myself and you old. And it's interesting um, because the titles look intensely 1990s. Like, everything about it has that same vibe of the 90s remake of a 60s film, like the Thomas Crown Affair Mm -hmm. with the infamous Coke Zero scene. (laughs) But everything else about it has just an excellent sort of 60s european film vibe it feels very hot yeah there are very throwbacky elements about this if you told me this was a late 80s film i would believe you like that sort of period piece that was in vogue at the time yeah and i really liked the uh the cinematography and the, the feeling of heat the costuming and the staging and i do think it makes an interesting companion piece to carol which is also doing his best to look of the period Mm -hmm. from the novel 
but in a very different way because it's trying for an extremely Americana feel. Well, and also, um, and so the two directors' intercessions with the texts fascinate me. And Carol is also about like the this outwardly and societally very cold place, while it's about this 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 small growing intimacy between these two people. Whereas Mr. Ripley is about this hot location that's very impassionate and full of feelings, but also about this extremely locked down character who's slowly smothering every genuine emotion he has. Contrasts! Yo, that's some interesting shit. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. And honestly, Carol, for me, is one of Haynes's films that I like, but I don't like it as much as some of his his other works, just because it does have that, that cold edge to it. The warmth doesn't escape maybe as much as it could under yeah. another filmmaker. Yeah, but I do think that he was the right choice to make that film because he has such a grasp of that Americana vibe. Mm-hmm. Like, specifically American film. And also... the 50s and 60s. Gay repression that's not boringly tragic. Yeah. Yeah, because he's a hopeful director. Mm-hmm. Good shit. Yeah. Hey, everybody, go watch Carol. <laughs> watch, watch Carol as an of- antidote to this movie. Watch both of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, pack a lunch because uh, this is over. This is two hours and 19 minutes and it shouldn't be. Shame on it. It does get a bit bogged down. And and the book isn't even that long, right? Yeah, it's like 250 pages. Yeah, so the, and the plot is not, uh... The plot is very simple. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's go with that. So this guy, Tom Ripley, lives in New York, plays piano, happens to con his way into getting a free trip to Europe. By pretending he went to an Ivy. <laughs> James Rebhorn. Hi, that guy. His son. Dickie Greenleaf, the worst name on earth. Dickie Greenleaf, who is played by Jude Law. Being just the worst. Not his acting. His acting is fine. His but... acting's fine. He almost apparently turned this role down because he was afraid that they were just going to make him a pretty boy. Well, he... He is a pretty boy, but... In that very particular angel face and fight club sort of way. He's got more to do. Yeah. Than Leto had to do in fight club. He's a better actor than Leto, so that works. I don't think he mailed any rats to anyone. Fair enough. (laughs) That puts him on a higher plane automatically. (laughs) Yeah, so Ripley is ostensibly going over to drag Dickie God, it's impossible to say that name with a straight face. Back to the States because he's run away and he's gallivanting all over Italy. And wasting daddy's money. And and he's met a woman, shock, who is played by Ms. Goop herself. Gwyneth Paltrow. Yep. She is apparently puttering away on a novel. And Dickie's fucking around on her. And Tom wants what they have and it's full single white female. I mean, single white female... Took from either this or from Les Biches, which was a French gender-swapped Marxist film that took elements of this. So, so in fact, single white female is just talented Mr. Ripley. So single white female is just like this fed through three coffee filters. (laughs) That explains a lot of things about that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that single white female has a direct lineage here. But he's much better at it than her. <laughs> Almost an hour of this movie is just him fucking around with them and envying Dickie's life and meeting Dickie's shitty friends. Not fucking around literally. 
Um, no, this is not cabaret. <laughs> yeah, no, this this isn't a threesome thing. Although there is this vibe of like this intimacy level where they're not properly navigating the level of closeness. Dickie's definitely not bisexual. No, definitely not. No, Dickie is definitely bisexual, but only has sex with women. Much repression, but definitely likes fostering levels of intimacy with men but he only likes it when it's deniable Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of going about to smoky clubs where you wrap an arm around the old gay mate and y'all get drunk and do things that you can deny the next day because nobody remembers it right so he gets but tom gets to be too direct about it right so like the bathtub scene damn that scene though i had this on tape i was like 13 or 14 and there is a palpable eroticism in that scene. There's a palp. <laughs> in fact, there's no palping, and that's the problem. Tom tries. He tries. He shoots his shot. By the way, uh, Tom, we haven't mentioned yet, is played by Matt Damon, who does a really good job. Yeah, Damon uh, Damon is very good at switching from a state of sort of um, really confused, overwhelmed vulnerability into just stone-cold shithead. <laughs> Well, and he's also handsome, but sort of in sort of an unremarkable way. Yeah, he, he's not like shockingly good looking the way uh, Dickie is. And which is great because Tom is supposed to be like that post that's going around about... Uh, These five white men are different people. <laughs> I feel like Matt Bomer would be cast as Dickie if it was made like 10 years later. Yeah. Because Matt Bomer has that same look where it's almost an artificiality in how good looking he is. Mm -hmm. Like so perfectly sculpted. Yeah. The camera really loves both of them. (laughs) Oh, so many sun-dappled shots of their sculpted faces. Right. And, uh, and, you know, 60s mesh shirts and and a light, (laughs) just light sweat. And somewhere in this mush of a first hour of stuff happening as they hang out on beaches yep a uh, a woman drowns herself because dicky had been fucking around with her and she was pregnant in this very catholic community and he, because he's treating it as an amusement park uh-huh the, the terrible american and so obviously he wasn't going to take responsibility and an, and an abortion wouldn't be an option for her so she drowned herself and then he feels like mild guilt dicky does ever so slightly and they keep calling one another brothers but then things start to take a turn when, number one, Tom gets too, a little too explicit. With that homoerotic subtext. Breaking all the present. bro codes. Right. But also Dickie's friend Freddie shows up. Played by the tragically late, late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Freddie Miles, who I am now staring at and wondering, so is Freddie Lounge supposed to be a nod to this guy? Because he's like... The shitty guy who shows up and sniffs around and throws a kink in, in the sophisticated chameleon's plans and is boorish and, but ultimately in his death, cracks the whole thing open. Don't know. I mean, I do feel like there is maybe a little of um, Ripley in Hannibal, but maybe just in Fuller's version. <laughs> you mean the best version? <laughs> but yeah, so Freddy is a creep. And he's also completely unshy about mocking and dunking on Tom. 
and the, of a lower socioeconomic class. Yeah, there and is obviously gay to him. Mm-hmm. The classism in this is extremely apparent. The movie kind of adds in this element of Tom, like what's keeping Tom from having this fabulous life isn't some inherent lack in him. It's the fact that he's lower class. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like I said, one of the adap- one of the quasi adaptations, Les Biches, was explicitly a Marxist film. And it was about how the lower class can be exploited and used as essentially toys and entertainments mm-hmm. by the upper class, who then can just decide to board with them. And then the only option is revolution. Which seems to be a thing of adaptation, because the way people talk about Heisman's novels is more that Ripley's only talent is that basically he's is that he can suck the talents out of other people, is that he can mirror other people. There is no inherent self there which I think I like the classism angle more. Yeah. And, um, and like, apparently one of the things that traditionally sets Ripley off and makes him want you dead is being tasteless, boorish, hmm, rude, one might say. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there is probably a somewhat of a line, though, although I wouldn't be able to say whether Freddie Lowndes was specific or was specifically named after Freddie Miles. It's just such a specific name for a latter day work of a ma- with a male character, you know. Yeah, Freddie is an odd name for an adult man. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, uh, Dicky gets tired of this shit, and basically what he does is he says, "Look, I'm gonna tell Daddy that you've been swindling him out of his money because he figured this out." ages ago and has been kind of rolling with it well tom took the risk of immediately telling him Mm -hmm. on the odds that dickie would find that amusing which he did Mm -hmm. it was a good gamble for a moment yeah but now he's bored of him and also gay panicking yeah so they go out on a boat which is a very safe and good thing to do yeah like this will be our last time spending time together alone on a boat where no one can hear me scream Uh uh-huh and homoerotic murder ensues Tom spoons the body. I really like the effects on on the face when Tom smacks uh, Jude Jude Law's character Dickie in the face with an oar. Um, the way the skin splits open is really cool looking. <laughs> yeah, it's a really it's like as we describe it to you, it's a very overwrought and obvious sounding scene. Which again, nineteen fifty five, via nineteen ninety nine, but it 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 plays well as you watch it. Yeah. And then the sh- the second half of the movie begins, and the shenanigans. Yeah. So Tom steals Dickie's identity, but also claims that Dickie has fucked off to elsewhere in Europe because it's the 50s and nobody keeps records of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so he tells Gwyneth Paltrow, sorry, he dumped us both. And I can't be and here he- anymore. I have to go. And I mean, he pretty much exactly says that. Is we've both been dumped. <laughs> yep. And she's like, yeah. But I thought he was going to... I guess I pushed him too much on whether to marry me. Phil, and the movie is sort of playing with this idea that Tom, is Tom in love with her because she's part of the package deal of this life? Or does he really have affection for her? Is he gay? Is he bi? Does he hate her? Mm Mm-hmm. For all that she is a quack who's selling people dangerous fake medicine, Paltrow does give a good performance in this. Yeah. Um, This poor woman gets gaslit by everybody in the movie, by the way. It's very upsetting. (laughs) Yeah, actually, poor Margo gets just gaslit by literally everyone in her life whether mm-hmm. they yeah because so tom figures all right i'll tell her 
that he's just fucked off and she'll stay put and grieve and grieve and then I will fuck off down to Venice, I believe it Rome. is. Rome. And live it up as Dickie. Where- but also I'll check into a hotel under my name so that there's records of me being in a different place than Dickie. Mm-hmm. While he's doing this, he takes up with Kate Blanchett's character, Who Meredith. Me- yeah. And he met her on the boat over and had just initially claimed to be Dickie because that's a fun one-off joke. Mm-hmm. And but now, now it, but now it like helps cement his presence there. Meredith was added for the film, you said, yes, yes, and which is interesting to me because I'm not sure how the whole thing comes apart without her. Um, it just doesn't have that last mm. twist. So, I all in all, I think it's a good addition, frankly. Um, and also that theme of mirroring because Kate Blanchett looks a lot like Gwyneth Paltrow in yeah. this movie. And um, so Blanchett's character Meredith. Is somewhat hilarious. She is the white woman who's who's moved to Brooklyn and lives for, off her trust fund. <laughs> she is exactly the type who gentrifies, but talks about how much she hates her wealth. Oh, and she's doing the most amazing mid-Atlantic accent. It's excellent, and I love it. <laughs> and her scenes mostly involve uh, near miss. Oh no, I've double booked my dates. But type shenanigans. He, but sometimes he does it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, he has also, however, just met Margot, Paltrow's character's friend, Peter, who is gay. And openly so, as openly as you could be for that for that time. And he's a composer. So he's very cultured. He's gay. He's not scared to be with Tom. He's basically the ideal. So then we get a long period of just shenanigans assuring us that that Tom keeps digging himself deeper into these two identities and leaning into the Greenleaf identity because of all the privileges that come with it. (laughs) While also trying to live this authentic life with Peter that is the one he wanted all along in theory, or is it? How much is he aspirationally chasing this wealth? You know, is it that he's just in too deep to cut ties or can't he let the idea of it go? Yeah. Margot starts to feel suspicious of Tom because it just all feels too neat. Dickie's just fucking off and not contacting anyone. Because at this point, they have also tried to fold it in that. So Freddie has died because he caught on and Tom murdered him. And in order to cover this up, Fre- uh, Tom tries to kill Dickie again by claiming that he killed Freddie and then committed suicide. Yeah, he writes a suicide note and... Dickie Greenleaf was seen, you know, placing Freddie in a car after the murder and everything. Mm-hmm. And Margot is like, I know that's not right. Subtext, he's way too fucking narcissistic to kill himself. <laughs> yeah. And she's right. And that's the hell of it. But every man in her life keeps just pressuring her to let it go, including Dickie's father. Like the elder Greenleaf even heavily pressures her to drop it. Because he's found out about the chick who killed herself back at the beginning of the movie. The one who was pregnant that Dickie was fucking around with. So he's like, this sounds totally on brand for my son, but I don't want her to actually ever know this piece of the puzzle. Because that would make her upset more so than having everybody in her life lie to her. So we're just going to cover all- we're just going to bury the whole thing, old chap, because- and, and he, like, he he believes that Dickie killed himself, but he also just doesn't believe that she deserves any information. He also believes that Tom knows about the 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 uh, the woman who drowned herself, and so they're having this. So you were a bro to my son, so have his trust fund. 
Mm-hmm. Which is how the book ends, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, and it ends with, and then Tom will, he's gotten away with it scot-free, but he'll always have to have the anxiety of because no one's held him responsible, what if one day someone figures him out? Which, for a very interior novel, may work. Again, I'm also not disinterested in reading this. Maybe for the book club someday, or maybe I'll just read them while you're doing them for work. <laughs> I don't know. Something. Uh, but for the film, that's not a very... The way specifically this film is built, that's not a very satisfying conclusion. So the movie adds an extra dimension where Tom gets the trust fund and then he goes away on a cruise with Peter. Yeah. But... And he and Peter, like, are definitely involved at this point like they've had these intimate conversations about the dark places in the soul and what it would mean to let someone in there and truly allow oneself to be seen do they kiss or is there just a lot of intimate touching i think we get the sound effect of a kiss it's one of those things where like it's very gay but somewhere a straight person is like they're such good friends yeah (laughs) but so they're gonna be on a cruise before they arrive at A place where Peter has a concert in a couple months. But while while standing there and basically making like uh, like Jack Dawson at the front of the boat, who should show up but Meredith? Aw, shit. Again, the character written in. (laughs) And she's like, darling, Dickie, what are you doing here? Fuck, 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 fuck. Uh, vacation? So... Tom claims that he's, like, essentially Dickie Greenleaf in witness protection. And he can't kill her because her family is there. Like, her whole family's there, and they know him, and they they saw her go up to him, and... So... So he goes back to his and Peter's cabin, and Peter's pissed at him because he saw him kiss Meredith. He's like, what the fuck, bro? I thought... I thought we were a thing. So there's this very well portrayed uh, visual, visually this struggle that that Damon got it's fucking agonizing where he's like trying to decide whether he's actually willing to, to do what he said he'd been craving to do, which is let somebody into the, the dark parts of himself and let all that light in there. And, and Peter disclose. is like vocally offering to do this to, to hear what whatever explanation there is, but. Peter doesn't know just how awful the things Tom has done are and doesn't know that he's, you know, claimed to be Dicky to someone. That he's killed two people. <laughs> yeah, so he, so they lay in bed together and Tom asks, asks him to like, tell me any good thing you can think of about me. And then he strangles him to death. And, and, un- the- and undoubtedly leaves the body like looking like he killed himself. Mm-hmm. Because, because what's one dead gay? A dead gay artist, yet. more or less. Which which means that that thing he was composing will undoubtedly be legendary. And the film ends with this shot of Damon in this very small box of light, sobbing to himself at, in this in this prison he's closed himself into. And I had an emotion. How fucking dare you, movie? Because he just couldn't let go of that privilege mm-hmm. that that he's achieved. And he has to be able to just wait out the trip with Meredith and then never see her again. Because he can't kill her right now. So he, so it's this whole calculation 
I feel like the catharsis of seeing him sob over it is something that the film really needed. Yeah, I, I feel like if it had ended on a more Hannibal-esque scene of him, like, coldly staring into the distance, kind of thinking about some stuff, it wouldn't have worked. The movie would have felt very cynical. Mm -hmm. And even though this is still a utilitarian grief, I'm sad because I no longer have access to you. It still has more impact. It feels like there is some kind of arc for the character. Yeah. Where he's just dug himself into this and he keeps making choices. I think that's kind of what I like about it is it's always an element of choice when he does these things. Mm -hmm. Like even with Dickie's murder in the minute, he keeps making these choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes for a very interesting character in this way that he seems like he had like he seems like he had no choice until you step back and think of it for a second and the choice is let go of the money yeah and he never does so it's interesting to see a character who never pays consequences except to himself like he's the one who has to has to live with his consequences and administer and, and his actions are their own punishments mm -hmm. like he keeps creating these situations that cause himself pain. So it makes him a very interesting entry in this evolution of queer villainy on film and in literature, because he is in some ways the type, he, he's some ways in line with that history of the queer coded villain who, you know, like in Purple Noon gets their comeuppance at the end because justice may be served, which you told me the uh, ending of Purple Noon is the body washes up, right? Um, the body that he wrapped, Dickie's body that he wrapped in canvas, um, the canvas got tangled around the propeller of Dickie's yacht. So it jams. And so they fish the body out after he's already gotten the money and gotten away with the murder of Freddie and framed Dickie and made Dickie's suicide be totally believed. Then the cops come up to him because the body's been pulled out and they realize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the ending you would expect. And he's not like a wildly progressive character either because he is still somebody who is partly because of, of his queerness, you know, motivated towards like driven hounded toward these inevitably unhappy ends. Yeah, just this sort of alienation from normality. But at the same time, he's also a complicated, really multifaceted character from this era of you know when price of salt was written the reason it ends when it does is because you were not allowed to publish a novel where a queer couple had a happy ending specifically lesbian pulps had always had formula endings the more butch character would either go insane or die or they would both die if they didn't both die, the more femme character would end up with a man and be returned to heterosexuality after being pried out of the clutches of. And there were very few lesbian pulp authors who were pushing against that at the time because most lesbian pulp authors were not actually lesbians. Mm -hmm. Mostly they were straight men. Well, and Highsmith apparently wasn't out when she wrote that novel and was quite, uh, had a lot of internalized homophobia that she hadn't worked through yet, which makes Carol, uh, Price of Salt an even more interesting novel, honestly. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think there is sort of that qualitative difference. And with Ripley, there's that sense that I don't think you find in many other characters of the era of what would make him happy is if he could be out, like to an extent. 
that that so much of the linchpin of this tightly controlled identity is the fact that he is constructing heteronormativity for himself. Uh, at the same time, he's, he's constructing every other element of a successful identity, because mm-hmm. I think that element of success, the fact that heteronormativity is part of that package that he's emulating and stepping into um, is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I do think that with the whole obsession with taste and class and the fact that he's better at these things but all of these high class people who are such garbage <laughs> like horrible like, trash yes like Dickie and Freddie have the privilege to just move around the world and fuck about but have no taste they didn't buy any expensive busts to beat people to death with <laughs> extra motherfucker but I, I think that does sort of harken back to Rope and to Leopold and Loeb where the idea is that I'm set apart by my higher intelligence and tastes well and the film doesn't really touch on it but it's very really interesting to think of this of Ripley as a character transplanted to the 90s the gay 90s where it, by 1999 you're getting into that Sort of Iraqi's doing gay crime. Yeah, well, like separate from new queer cinema, you're also getting this mainstream queerness that's about queer. uh, Oh God, what's the word? Respectability. Queer respectability, but also uh, queer. You know the the queer eye sort of. Yeah, the queer eye and the um, the one your mom liked, uh, Will and Grace. Not queer colonialization, but you know, where rich fuckers move into a new neighborhood. Gotcha. Yeah, that sort of gentrification vibe. Yes, queer gentrification, where, oh, you want the gays to move in, and they'll open up a bunch of little boutiques and shops. The gays have class. Well, and also, the gays don't have children, so they have lots of disposable income, was literally part of a lot of marketing strategies in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. So even though this movie doesn't really engage with that because the queerness is so coded and Peter is Peter, the Peter's relationship to these rich people is never really super looked into. Like he's definitely rich. He's also definitely like a step apart. He's sort of an accessory. I feel like Mm -hmm. to Margot. He is very much her gay bestie, even though we're not using those terms. Yeah. Yeah. He also gaslights the shit out of her, by the way. Yep. Like, all of these men are trash to her. Don't worry, all the men are trash. (laughs) All of them, gay, straight, trash. (laughs) Like, his relationship with Ripley is very tender, but (laughs) he is also gaslighting this woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm just, like, I'm fascinated by that idea of the rich, tasteful queer Mm -hmm. in 90s art. 90s mainstream art. And also, like- Where you're just a little fussy. Mm Mm-hmm. All those period pieces of the time. That fucking Merchant of Venice that came out in the late 90s. <laughs> Is that the one with Jeremy Irons? With the kiss? Uh-huh. <laughs> the Merchant of Venice. That's something they keep making. It sure is. For some reason. <laughs> Why? Mm. I have a colleague who's doing extensive work on um, on measure for measure. And stagings of it, like in the present and and how it handles consent and it's another one where it's like she she sounds like me when she's talking about it is don't watch this but like it's very interesting isn't it like why are they making this but if you do watch it here's what you should do <laughs> that van cron field uh-huh like it's very that it's <laughs> like we're really still doing this well all right i guess <laughs> 
I feel like the last thing we should talk about before we go is uh, New Ripley, which is happening. That's happening? Okay. Why? Where is it happening? Oh. It's a series, right? Yes, it is series with the Camp Moriarty, who's not Vincent Price. He's too old. Like, okay, I guess they're gonna have it be, like, set during the later novels, because I feel like you could get a more sort of episodic... 60s spy movie series vibe. Okay, so it's Showtime, starring uh, Andrew Scott. Yeah. Hot priest. I am informed. That's what they say. People who are not me really like him. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think it's telling that they're, they're specifically casting Scott, because I do think it speaks to the audience they're courting. Yeah. It feels like they're definitely courting the Sherlock audience. Okay, in fairness... Scott himself is gay. But yeah, definitely I think they are courting that Sherlock audience. So so then the question is, are they actually going to work with the homoeroticism of the works, or are they going to Is he going to be bi homicidal? Oh Jesus H Christmas. And I know he's not to blame for the sins of Moffat, but mm-hmm. like again, it's that whole sort of sprawling web of connections that they're drawing on. Mm-hmm in this casting choice yeah there are expectations based on this brand this juggernaut brand that is not just bbc sherlock but the bbc and the kinds of dramas populated by white people that court homoeroticism but frequently frequently allied it you know for the sake of respectability yeah so is showtime actually gonna do something interesting with this which is like the legacy of tom ripley but like but not like this yeah yeah, like our, but if we're doing Ripley now, are we going to take another step? Mm-hmm. Like as this film did. And if so, what survives of the character? How do you do the murdering gay in 2020? Yeah. And make it worth watching? Like Hannibal exists. And even that, shaky ground. Mm-hmm. And it had. And it also had that deniability problem. Up until the very end when they got canceled and said, fuck it. People still deny it, though. Yeah, that's true. Okay, but that's on them by the end of season three. (laughs) Yes, but I'm just saying, like... (laughs) That's true. Yeah, it is... I just... I find, like, Ripley is a very interesting character, but I just don't think it has any place as a... What seems to be just a name grab type of series. Yeah, because if you're doing a series, I can see where you could do an interesting sort of caper thing with it. But there's some things that I doubt the execution will happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I've liked some Showtime shows. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I would like to be wrong about this. Yeah. I mean, I'll probably watch it. Yeah. Because I'm curious. I'll watch some episodes. But between that and the, um, have you heard, listeners? Looks like meat's back on the menu. <laughs> oh my God. This podcast is just a fucking chronicle of every time the VC TV series gets cancelled and uncancelled. Yes, and I love it. I love that we are your your VC TV source. <laughs> yeah, it's uncancelled again. Uh, but it's AMC this time, so it might actually shamble to life in the most horrifying form possible. Hey, v- I mean, AMC loves The Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. All right, that's there. There are there's nobody attached to it. No, not, not even, even Anne Rice. 
which is why it might be good. It might. But also, you know, one thing that can be said for the Hulu series of it is it actually had a woman of color as its showrunner, and AMC is deathly afraid of showrunners who aren't white men. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to happen anyway, but I thought I should mention it. Yep. Since we were talking about probably poorly thought out <laughs> television adaptations of ancient and badly aged... <laughs> Things that will probably not be changed enough to be meaningful in the 21st century, yes. Oh god, I just had this horrible image of it not being a period piece. Oh my god. Like, just a modern set Ripley where it's like Mr. Robot. It is a period piece, we we don't have to do that, but also the image. (laughs) It's a bad image, right? Oh my god, talented Mr. Ripley does owe a debt to, to interview, doesn't it? I mean... Five years later, same opulent European setting. I mean, the vibe is there, and... Most of this movie is during the daytime, but the nighttime scenes are intensely, mm-hmm. and a lot of the interiors are intensely evocative of the the way, um, there's a, definitely a sequence where I was like, oh, look, it's the Paris sequence. Mm-hmm. I also, I know we're trying to close down, but I did also want to just give a shout out to the excellent um, use of costuming over the course of the film, particularly in relation to Paltrow's character. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, because while, um, well, the costuming for Tom is part of his visual transformation from being a misfit, because his clothes are literally misfit, mm-hmm. into stepping seamlessly into this world and also having a genericism to him that allows him to occupy multiple positionalities in it. Paltrow's character, um, has some excellent, uh, clothing decisions because... While she starts out very casual at the beach location, as they move into more urban settings and as she's under a sort of constant mental attack, her clothing becomes much more architectural and um, sculpted in its styling. So it it looks like armor by the end, like she's trying to protect herself. It's, it's so really good, good costuming. It's so fucking good. So I guess, you know, if you are in a space where you're looking for a murder gay movie with a sad ending. This is a good one. Yeah. And then watch Carol to feel better. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Like Dorothy mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we're going to be watching three other genres. Uh, I won't tell you all the titles, but the other ones are sort of comedy shenanigans, uh, sci-fi, and then of course a uh, supernatural horror. Because we we had a lot. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed our thriller. Yes, because again, there had to be one. It's everything prior to like 1990 in new queer cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. All right. So thank you so much for joining us, listeners. If you liked this episode, you can find more from us on our SoundCloud or you you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash trash and treasures, where if you become a $5 a month donor, we have a monthly bonus episode, but you know, every little bit helps. $2 a month, we have a fantastic recipe guide uh, where Dorothy puts up alcoholic and non-alcoholic versions of the drinks she makes for Drunk Book Club. And every little bit we really appreciate. Um, it means a lot to us that our little podcast, y'all like enough to to donate to us keeping the lights on. If you want to find us on social media, you can always... Find us on Tumblr at trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com or on Twitter at trashpod. And also, if you have longer form thoughts than social media will hold, you are free to email us at trashtreasurespod at gmail.com. 
We love to get emails. The next title on our four-week course for Pride is our comedy, as mentioned. It is the 2001 movie that uh, Friends and Family, which probably kudos to you if you have heard of it. <laughs> this is going to be funny to talk about because of a similarity to something else that we've featured once before. Hooray! Uh, happy Pride, listeners. Take care of yourselves, and we love you. See y'all. <laughs>